Hello everyone and welcome to the latest Dairy Pod. I'm Rory MacDonald from the Dairy Australia farm team. More and more farmers are becoming interested in adding a beef component to their breeding program. But is it simply as easy as just buying some Angus semen for your lower performing cows and making a quick dollar from high market prices? Cameron Rinshaw has built his northern Victorian business, Calflink, on the back of growing demand for high quality dairy beef. But in this discussion with Sarah Bolton from the Dairy Australia Animal Health and Welfare team, Cameron stresses that the opportunities that exist for the dairy industry can only be capitalised on if farmers are willing to listen to what the market wants and provide the right product. It's a really interesting discussion and one that has big implications for farm profitability, animal welfare and indeed the dairy industry's social licence. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you actually do here at Carflink in terms of the animals that you bring on and, and where they head to from here and what you're really focused on doing? Sure. So one of the focuses, one of our main focuses has been around how we, in Australia, we commercially handle um, larger amounts of first cross, predominantly first cross animals out of the dairy industry that then can integrate across into the beef supply chain. Early on, what we recognised is that unlike other markets in North America, the US and the UK, where this is, um, in the UK it's a standard practice and in the US it's becoming becoming the standard, um, is that Australia doesn't have any real large scale capacity to address bobby calf issues fundamentally. And so that's where we've focused our energy on. So. Our facility here at Elmore, um, geographically, we plonked it pretty much right in the centre of um, all the dairy and region, so we had access to supply and all the markets. Um, and we've done it with the intention of having as large a scale um, as, as we can at the minute for the supply coming at us. So this year, we'll, we'll, this year we're... Um, just coming up we're between two and a half to three years operationally and 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 from that we've gone from rearing zero calves and we'll rear five and a half thousand calves this year through yeah. the through the system and the bulk of those calves will then um, integrate into the um, feedlot beef supply chain with some partner feedlots that we've worked with since day one fabulous and how does your business interact with dairy farmers? Is it on a you know commercial relationship, or how does that sort of work at a farm level? Yeah, I mean it's a we we it's a good question. Our we work with dairy farmers in all in, in a variety of manners. So um, for those of you who are familiar with what kind of the what the calfling business model is, um, we we buy everything from open market calves. Typically, our main focus is that week to 10 days old, buying a calf. We pick them up directly off farm. Um, we work with clients from dairy farmers that want to completely stay open market focused, which obviously in this environment, there's a lot of people wanting to stay open market focused. And then we, and then from that spectrum, we can go right the way through to people that um, are working closely with um, a partnership, like a... a, a um, uh, a partnership that we've got with CMEX on their repro management and through that they will be using um, repro tools that CMEX offer and then just part of that overall repro package there will be a beef component and then so that's where we fit in 
you're going to you use the beef semen, you're going to have calf link as an option there to pick the calves up at a week to seven days of age. So our relationship with the dairy farmers goes from open market to contracted to indexed to negotiated uh, and everything in between. Yeah, uh, I suppose it's really it's a really new. Uh, I mean, it's still very new. Beef on dairy in Australia has been around for quite some time, but we're starting to notice, particularly the last two and a half years, there is a real focus now and a real conversation around having a beef on dairy program. And then once we have that program, um, what are we going to do with the calves and, and how do we handle it? Definitely a, a pretty topical area at the moment for the industry, certainly. And I guess you mentioned um, the current operating environment where I'm sure everyone's aware of the fact that you know beef commodity prices are really favourable at the moment and there's huge demand for cattle. I guess I'm interested in the motivation from your perspective for setting up this sort of business in that everyone's really paying a lot more attention to the beef on dairy side of things at the moment, given that operating environment. Is it a bigger, is it a bigger picture for you than just that current favourable environment at the moment? You know, how do you see the, the business opportunity, but also the demand for this space in, in the broader picture and, and a wider sort of time scale? We see a um, much broader focus on our business outcomes than the here and now. So, I mean, the here and now, we're at record beef prices. The country's never seen um, beef prices as high as they are, right through, right through, no matter what um, item that you're trying to buy in the cattle space. There is the, the supply and demand off the back of the drought where we were killing so many females. That problem still is with us today. We're still seeing a lot of females slaughtered above where we'd like to see it from a beef national inventory number. So Australia is always going to be grappling with um, supply and demand issues through our kind of seasonal cycles. Uh, it's just that we've come out of one where it's been a, a really bad drought. We've slaughtered, and through no one's fault, but we've slaughtered so many females now that our, our S&D has become inverted and supply and demand is just where anything with four legs that's a, that's a, that resembles a cow is getting really good money. And which is good, you know, it brings awareness, it, it, it brings new conversations to the table, uh, brings challenges, um, but it also brings good opportunity for everybody in the supply chain, not just, not just Carflink, um, everybody. So, but long term for us, the opportunity that we saw was that it'll either be the economics or it will be animal welfare drivers that will essentially drive the dairy industry as a whole to have some component of a beef program. Now, um, not everyone will adopt that because some people have access to heifer export markets, but even within, even within those markets, um, repro management by default still suggests that you're not going to have all sexed semen programs or all conventional programs. We are already started to see the transition from the industry where they're, ha where they're actively now having some form of a beef program. It's just that some farms are on different levels. You know, we've got we've got many clients now that have made the transition to all sexed and all beef. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if we go back to probably what we could refer to as a slightly more traditional model of thinking about joining the dairy herd, whereby we're focused on getting our required number of replacement females and, and the rest of the calves, our surplus or our non-replacement, will go to the bobby calf market or, you know, early life slaughter in general. Obviously, at the moment, there's that economic driver for being more targeted towards beef 
production potentially, but also that, you know, preservation of industry social license and that public trust component that's really driving how we sort of um, are starting to look at that um, that joining program and the options for those animals. So um, could you step the listeners through, I guess, if we're thinking about, you know, particularly at the moment coming up to autumn joining, what are our options when it comes to thinking about replacement females, pure dairy breed animals, beef breed animals, where they're going, where they're heading, how are people sort of best placed to start thinking about some of those breeding decisions? Sure. I suppose I draw back on what I learned, you know, the years of doing all these joining programs and working with clients around their heifer, you know, just their heifer replacement proportion of their herd. There'd be more dairy farmers that I would that I was dealing with that would have too many heifers than not enough. Now I get that there's a balancing act and you should always have a few more heifers up your sleeve for growth plans or potential export opportunities. Um, but the hidden cost in having too much replacement inventory in your herd, because you don't receive a check for it, um, is a, is a massive it's a massive cash cost to the business and so when we look at um repro management as a whole it is understanding um who are, are we in a growth phase and if so then that's got um decisions that be made around that um but we're finding now that the progressive farmers would be having a um sexed program into their best heifers and milkers, and then we'd be finding that there would be the middle, that the, there'd be the middle ground that they would still be deploying conventional semen into, and then beef in the bottom end that is completely terminal cross. There's nothing wrong with her as a milking cow, you know, for the next X amount of years, but we don't want to, we don't want to put beef in uh, dairy into her to produce a potential heifer that then we we sneak back in because she's cute and she's good and her grandmother was good and, and all the conversations that we all have day to day around repro with, with with resellers and AI technicians and dairy farmers and consultants. So we all get these conversations. They're, they're regular conversations, but it's around making sure that we are um, actively putting some lines in the sand and saying, this is where our dairy business is heading. And to do that, we only need 80 replacement heifers. We don't need 130. Exactly. There's a huge cost there. So how do we manage that surplus that we all seem to, we always seem to just have down in the back paddock? Yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned the cost of rearing surplus females as well. Do you think dairy farmers tend to perhaps underestimate the, the actual cost that goes into rearing replacement females, particularly oh, in excess? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, 100%, 100%. It's been since, since I've entered the industry and, and understanding what the true costs are to have a, a replacement heifer from birth through to point of calving, I think we're always undervaluing that considerably. And when it comes to thinking about using beef over the dairy herd and thinking about those surplus animals, what are some things that uh, farmers should be considering when it comes to selecting a beef bull for use over the dairy herd? It's a great question. What we're seeing is, first and foremost, it's fertility and calving ease. If you can't get those, <clears throat> if those two boxes aren't ticked, then any type of relationship or beef program moving into the future, um, the dairy farmers that use um, low fertile or troublesome calving, 
they haven't had a good, they're not going to have a good experience. Therefore, they're not going to want to do it next joining, and and their and their level of skepticism is increased, and so it should be. So it's making sure that um, fertility is number one. The whole point of a beef program is that we see terminal cross animals that are earmarked for beef, but also cows that are you know long days open. Um, they've had trouble calving. Um, they're prob- they're problematic. They've had three or four goes getting them joined. So we're always dealing with the bottom end of the herd in some form or another that have that are a problem around repro, and therefore we need high fertility beef semen going into them so that we can get them to click as quick as we can to reduce days open, which is a big cost to the dairy farmer. So there's some added values there with high fertility beef in the bottom end that we can start to reduce and pull back days open for the dairy farmer. Now, carving ease is then critical. I mean, we do not want to be entering these programs where we're, particularly out of heifer programs, where we're having problems carving carving them down. Because once again, you, you will not be invited back with a beef program next joint. So when we think about how, I mean, how we're starting to see the beef on dairy programs roll out through the industry, we've got to be mindful of what the dairy farmer needs. Um, we've got to be mindful of what the calf rearers need, what the backgrounders need, what the feedlots need, um, the what the markets are asking as well. So carcass yield, intermuscular fat, marble score, um, ribeye size and, and shape. Um, so there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be thought about from from whether you're an AI technician, a dairy farmer, or a reseller, or a semen company. I mean, these are these are some of the fundamental questions that need to be answered when giving advice to your clients on beef programs. Where we've seen it be non-sustainable in the past is we've had a lot of, and we still have today, a lot of unlicensed collected beef semen at a local level be then deployed into the dairy industry because it's, you know, it's three or four dollars cheaper. Off the back of that, you then have a calf that nobody wants to buy. So we're actually not fixing, we're actually not fixing the bobby calf issue. We've just replaced it, a black and white animal, with a black animal. We haven't really fixed a problem because the, what the market needs, we get, we've got to get an, an education and understanding from both the red meat industry and the dairy industry that says, this is what the dairy industry requires. We need high fertile, easy calving semen. And the beef industry is saying that's all good, but what we want is we want um, high growth, high carcass yield, um, and you know we want ribeye shape that's X. And so we've got to try and have um, these two industries both understand everyone's requirements, and everybody that plays within that supply chain as well, so that it's profitable for everybody, so that it then is a sustainable change. And so to do that, when you think about all the people that play a role and that can benefit from a good beef on dairy program, um, we're still seeing uh, the decisions are being made around whether a, a semen of straw is $8 or $12. And, it's, and, and when you think about the opportunity that both industries at an industry level have, the price of that straw is negligible, absolutely negligible. My advice would be make sure that when you're entering a beef on dairy program, you're understanding what the next person in the chain needs. And then, and then the person ne- after them needs as well. 
And so we've spoken a little bit about, I guess, the genetics of the surplus calf that we're breeding. Once that calf hits the ground, what are some of the other practical on-farm things that dairy farmers can make sure you know, they're ticking in terms of um, boxes that need to be ticked around calf management, interaction with the broader supply chain in order to make these alternatives as viable as possible heading into the future? Colostrum. Colostrum, colostrum. Um, one of the transitions that we're seeing, and, and we are seeing this happen, and it's very, very positive to see that people are adopting a beef program and they are very adopting of what the calf link um, service is. Traditionally, they would be viewing the bobby calf as a bobby calf. So minimum to no colostrum, get it through to three to five days of age and it gets picked up and it goes to slaughter. And that's and still today, that's a fairly traditional model that is that is happening. The farmers that we're working with, um, they're already progressive by nature. Um, hence, they're looking for a solution and a better outcome. Um, and they're treating those terminal cross calves that are earmarked for calf link the same as their heifers. So, for instance, we've got a number of clients now that would be we get a, when we pick calves up, we get a file back from them that says they've had um, four litres of colostrum that was 26 on the bricks. And so we're starting to see that the industry is changing um, and, I think and I think they're aware of why they need to change. It's not, and it's not just consumer sentiment. I mean, a lot of the comments that we get back is that people are just sick to death of the manner in which we dispose of terminal cross calves and it, and it, and it affects the calf rarers, it affects the ability to even employ calf rarers and find employment and try and fill that employment gap for growth and just to maintain the herd. So, you know, it's a, it's just, it's part of the evolution of where we're at in, in, in trying to have a sustainable option for, for terminal cross calves, whether they're a Holstein, a Jersey or, or a beef animal. Yeah, and I think that shift to what the UK is now calling responsible breeding strategies, as you mentioned, is not just beneficial for that public image and that social license of the industry. There's farm business opportunities there, but, you know, even for the the mental health of everyone operating on farm in terms of being able to come to work and know that, you know, and feel good about where all those calves are going um, is certainly a huge opportunity for the industry. I guess changing track a little bit, what are some of the risks involved with um, breeding calves for the dairy beef market, with setting up supply chains? How do people sort of navigate some of the volatility that's involved? And I guess um, what can often be a little bit of a fractured supply chain as well with many different players and not necessarily strong connections. The supply chains today are, are um, few and far between. Um, we're seeing such an active... Um, restock a market that then our attention is drawn away from it trying to get through the rhetoric and understand um, how you be involved in those supply chains and what do they even mean what does a supply chain even mean um, so um, getting understanding understanding your beef program you one of the main questions you need to be asking is where do we sell this animal how do we sell it? Who's going to come and pick it up? Are we happy? Are we happy with the? Um, are we happy with the type of people that are picking the calves up? Um, is it a? Is it a Facebook Marketplace sale? Is it a Gumtree sale? Is it a, through your local stock agent? Is it to Calflink? Is it to the slaughter bobby calf truck? So, you know, there's been one or two traditional models that people understand because they've had to deal with it, and now we've got all these options, 
And so when we're making the decisions around all these options that we've got today, we need to be understanding where those calves are going. I mean, for us, um, we find it very beneficial that, you know, we've got that relationship with CMEX where we've got um, their national sales team on the road every day that can talk to farmers about this kind of stuff. I mean, this podcast that we're doing today, I think is excellent. We're getting awareness and education out in the industry um, of what does an actual beef supply chain look like out of the dairy industry, I think it's not a conversation that we've had today, up until today, at an industry level. I guess the other thing, you know, we, we spoke a little bit about the fact that, you know, we've got um, a rising social pressure to change how we manage these calves and a really favourable operating environment when it comes to the economic side of things. But looking, you know, perhaps five or ten years into the future, if, or, you know, some people might even say when, we might have um, a significant reduction in, for example, beef commodity prices or we hit really unfavourable seasonal conditions again, how do you see the beef on dairy side of things handling those kind of shifts? Is this something that we're going to be able to navigate? Or if we find ourselves in a, um, a climatic or an economic operating environment that's really unfavourable, are the wheels going to fall off? So what we've seen overseas in these other three main markets with beef programs is at the conception phase, um, we see at an industry service provider level, a whole bunch of semen be deployed. Everyone's doing beef on dairy programs. We see, in unlike other countries, Australia's got a semen reseller network. So we see this. We see the reseller network deploy a whole bunch of beef semen for beef programs. And then what happens is the numbers come online out of the industry, and then the supply chains, and that's everybody in the supply chain. So it's the calf rarer. It's the backgrounder, it's the feedlot, it's the processor abattoir, it's the meat marketing companies, and it's the consumer. Right to that supply chain, you then start to see when supply comes up, you then start to see the supply chain start to work their way through the inventory and they start to commoditize it. If history's going to repeat itself, what we saw in, in the States was this exact thing. We had unlicensed, we go back to the unlicensed semen. We had unlicensed semen with really no idea of what animal we're going to be receiving. We get a whole bunch of these animals hit the market. In Australia, we know what our cycles of, our seasonal cycles mean. Like when we look at the amount of beef semen that's being deployed in the industry, if that comes in line with a seasonal that's not favourable for us, then there's going to be a situation where poor quality F1 bred cattle are going to be worth just as much as a Frisian bobby calf in that same environment. So you go back to your first question around um, what should we be thinking about today, you will give yourself the best chance in those environments to have a relationship with the market and understand what the market is asking of you. So good quality first cross beef calves and then you will be right when those seasonal conditions hit. And do you think that's got a role to play as well in um, what, dare I say, might be a bit of a traditional attitude from within the beef sector towards you know dairy animals being of poor quality? So making sure that we're actually breeding really high quality animals from the beginning, has that got a role to play in changing some of those cultural attitudes as well? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Traditionally, I think when we've looked at the semen that we've used in the industry, it's no, it should come as no surprise that the red meat industry doesn't really 
doesn't really enjoy that animal entering their system. I mean, there's there's very staunch traditional mindsets within the red meat industry of Australia, particularly up the eastern seaboard. And the higher you get up the eastern seaboard, the stronger those views become. Now, the opportunity that the Australian dairy industry has is to say to the meat industry, guys, this is starting to happen, and we want to try and advocate the best quality beef semen that we can get our hands on into our dairy herd to supply you guys with a good quality animal. But that doesn't come when we go right back and we're still in an environment where we've got unlicensed semen going into the industry of all different shapes and sizes and breeds. So, but then it works in this environment because the restockers are so active and, they'll, and they will buy that animal. So thinking about how, you know, all these, all these de- de- determining factors, we need to be understanding that, yeah, we've got a really good um, restocker market today. Is it gonna be here in six, 12, 18 months time? I've got no idea. I suspect that it'll be here through this through this year at a minimum. Um, when that changes, we need to be making sure that we send in good quality calves into the beef supply chain, and they will accept them. But they they won't accept them when they're poor quality from poor genetics. If they do accept them, it'll be at a major discount, and you'll be losing money. And for those dairy producers that are holding on to calves, you know, post weaning and even looking at growing them out themselves, perhaps on you know grazing blocks or whatever have you. We've spoken a fair bit about the genetics of the animal and, of course, the you know, importance of colostrum. What are some of the other factors that influence the quality of the animal entering the beef supply chain you know, beyond the weaning phase for those people that are looking at growing them out themselves? Once we get the animal to weaning, it's, it's not a case of um, kick them out and just let them gray in a grazing scenario, which is probably the traditional mindset of how we traditionally viewed the dairy heifer proportion of our herd. We get them to 140 kilos, then we move them to the out block and they roll with the seasons. We might give them a bit of concentrate here and there when it gets pinched, when they get into a pinch point. But if we're to treat this beef cross animal in that environment, you are then gonna still find yourself at a market and the market's gonna be saying, yeah, we get that you've used good semen, but the management of the animal, the nutritional level that it's been on is not up to scratch. And like I say, today, it's fine. We can get away with it today because of where the restocker markets are at. But we get into a normal season and a normal environment and, and that, that type of management system will see you have real trouble finding the market to recoup the inputs. You know, for me, I think it really emphasises that planning right from that joining point all the way through to the point that that, that animal leaves your care and even beyond that, really, at the point where that animal is actually being processed as a beef animal, yep. of really planning for every point in that phase rather than just going, well, you know, this is the, this is the surplus part of the herd and we'll find a, find a spot for them in the farm system, you know, wherever and however yep. we can. And I think that's potentially even land us in, in a little bit of a vicious cycle when it comes to Absolutely. the quality of the animals, the cost of production, the profit that we're making on them etc we all need to understand what job we play within these industries and so i see um, a lot of dairy farmers their job is getting milk solids in that vat so it's a big step it might it mightn't feel like it but it's a big step to go from that to now becoming a beef producer they're two different they're two different games so you've got to work out which game you're playing as well so um but like i say we're getting there's really good markets we're all getting sucked into them today as an industry we need to recognize do we want to fix a problem to start with and if we do then we need to have um, a view that looks through the rhetoric and starts to understand what is it 
mean to be part of a supply chain? How do we underpin our relationship with a car Ferrera so that the car Ferrera's relationship with the feedlot is is solid? So the wheels will fall off this thing when everybody's not pulling their weight. So one of the really common questions that dairy producer dairy producers often ask is what breed of beef bull should I be putting over the dairy herd and how do you see that sort of question being answered from their end? I mean we've got some typical herd breed um, that we see in the dairy industry and it goes from high production Holsteins right through to um, the Jersey breeds, three-way crosses, LIC, Illawarra's Reds, you know Scandinavian um, breeds as well. So one area that we know, and this is kind of where we're, we're working closely with CMEX because they've done a lot of this work um, uh, in the US and North America and the UK, is that once we get outside of the high production black and white um, animal, then those smaller frame dams need a specific set of genetics going into them so that we can roll some capacity in that calf when it enters the supply chain. So breed, sire breed type is important when we talk about um, are you milking jerseys, are you milking a three-way cross, or are you milking a high-production Holstein herd? So that's definitely something that you should be talking to um, your market about, what, what animal they want coming at them out of, that, out of that type animal. And then one thing that is very hard to argue against is the colour of the hide. We are still seeing globally a huge demand for black-hided cattle. We we do see, I mean, some of the breeds that we see dairy farmers use in their herds is mind-blowing. Um, with some of the breeds that we see getting sold for beef programs, it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to see where and how they're going to be placed in the market space. And I get that there's a bit of, um, you know, quirkiness around having these, these uh, niche breeds bred, but it's not the commercial or a sustainable answer. So it's understanding what herd you're milking to, to understand what semen should be going in there. Particularly the smaller framed animals, you need to be thinking about different breeds so they can roll capacity back in. And they really need to be um, black-hided cattle. At the end of the day, a lot of these products are being branded into black-hided marketplaces. It's essentially where we can add value right through the supply chain. We can't add value right through the supply chain so that it's sustainable if we're sending a belted Galloway down to the feedlot. Um, and then when you dig a little bit deeper into that, it's also understanding that we can be rolling the genetics with higher immunity traits to tick off some animal welfare issues. Polled, I mean, that's another really big one. We're already starting to see the polled and A2 movement in the dairy industry. That's very typical in the beef industry where we want polled cattle entering the system. So, you know, these are, these are all key questions that, Easily answered, but um, having conversations with who you think your end market's going to be. Yeah, definitely. And I guess um, you touched on breeding beef over Jersey breeds earlier, and I guess there's there's definitely, um, I guess, a bit of a traditional attitude that Holsteins are perhaps more appropriate for beef on dairy production compared to Jerseys, and a lot of people sort of maintain that view that yep. Jerseys are no good for beef production. What are some of, some of the different things you need to consider if you're milking, for example, a Jersey herd compared to a Holstein when it comes to choosing a beef cross sire? The reality around this one is the economics, purely and simply. We've all heard or eat or either eaten some Jersey and it's really nice, but the economic reality is that you don't get the carcass yield uh, and the meat traits that make it economically viable for that 
for a a lower quality beef sire into a jersey herd to be taken right through the supply chain so you need to be using specific sire composite breeds um, we quite we, we use a, a, a limflex which is a limbs and angus we get um, a lot more um, composite that the, the composite of that gives us a lot more growth capacity in the calf that then means that we can it can then stand on the same economic stage as an angus out of a holstein until we see some form of jersey brand be developed specifically for jersey beef the economic reality is is that that breed the jersey and the smaller framed milking animals need to be very very careful with what semen they are putting in their herd. People will often talk about whether or not there's a role for dairy beef to be branded as a product and to attract a premium on its own. And um, I guess perhaps even to shift some of the responsibility back onto the consumer in terms of, okay, well, if you want practices to change, these systems need to be viable and therefore we need to command a premium. What are your thoughts on you know, a premium around dairy beef as a brand or whether it should just be beef? Uh, no, I think I can see, I, I think what we know from animal welfare standards is what you're talking about. So if we have a look at what the guys from the RSPCA have done around all the other protein industries, chicken, pork, um, layer hens, uh, aquaculture, um, there's been a standard applied there. That standard mainly is adopted by the Coles um, retail space. And so I think that we are going to see a scenario where we're having, you know, we've now got Coles doing direct-to-farm milk contracts. Um, we know that the Tesco's and these guys overseas have done a model around where the animal welfare issues auditing system goes right the way through the farm, not just milk production in isolation, but the whole farming practices, effluent, bobby calves comes into that as well. So branding those products domestically um, around those standards will mean that the production system is dearer and it will mean that that needs to be reflected at the retail price and then it will mean that the, we need to educate our consumers to get them to understand what it is that they're buying and then that can be reflected back to the supply chain right to the from the price of the semen to the steak on your plate. Um, but I think that that will be a slower burn. The guys at RSPCA have done a have done a have done a really good job of um, reviewing their veal standard and applying it to a beef on dairy standard and and we've been we've been um, active in helping them through that that process so um, but that's got to come with the understanding from that we can't have these animal welfare higher standards if it's not reflected in the end product so there's a lot of work to be done around this but it, the conversation is happening and so um, we need to, it's a bit of a chicken and the egg, do we, do we move first on that or do we wait for the consumer to ask for us? So I think we've got to chew gum and walk in that scenario. But everyone in the supply chain needs to understand that these conversations are happening. Um, animal welfare issues are becoming, going to be coming to the surface um, around how we handle bobby calves. Um, and we need to have some form of a strategy in place that says yeah we understand this is our practices at the minute and this is where we're working towards and and i suppose that's why you know that's your role in da is to is to be understanding consumers farmers um, supply chains what everybody's requirements are and, and trying to integrate it together so you know you've got a big job ahead of you 
yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a complex problem when it comes to all those different influences. And I guess that's probably my final question for you in terms of looking 10 or even 20 years down the track, considering the social, the economic, the environmental, the political influences on this broader topic. What do you see as having the biggest influence and where do you think we'll be in 10 to 20 years time as an industry? I think that our reproduction management and the viability of dairy farmers are going to be one of the main factors so as we we see more technology applied to how we manage repro i mean we see that year on year now we look at the stack semen story you know we're going to see i imagine we'll get to the point where we'll start to see common practice of sexed male beef semen in the bottom bottom of the herd that's something that we're already starting to think about so the technology at the front end of the supply chain and repro is going to um is going to make the decisions on behalf of the farmer. Uh, and then we're going to see the pull through from the market end, whether it's the retail or the international markets, you're gonna see pull through from them. Um, and then in between that, we're gonna to have to have just constant education around what it means. In 10 to 15 years time, I think we see an industry that has got just a standard by default beef program at some level in every herd, whether it's 5% or 40%, and everything in between, depending on what that farm's requirements are, um, and then we're going to then we're going to see um, a calf rearing sector be established, and then we can start to see true supply, big scale supply chains that that then integrate straight into the red meat industry. So I, I think you know, in ten or fifteen years' time, we're going to see um, pretty much what we're seeing in the U.S., Canada, and uh, and the U.K. Is, is those integrated supply chains to really address animal welfare and make and make it more economic as well. You know, as much as it's a, a hugely challenging topic for the industry at the moment, in speaking to you today, one thing that really stands out clearly is that there's a wealth of opportunities and it's a very exciting space, um, but certainly one for the whole industry to come together on. Absolutely. So really appreciate your time here today and thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sarah. We'd like to thank both Sarah and Cameron for that detailed discussion. It certainly covered a lot of ground and should get people thinking about what's required to make dairy beef sustainable for your farm and for the wider industry. If you'd like to hear more about dairy beef and the options for surplus calves, Australian dairy farmers will be running the 2021 ADF Dairy Beef Forum, an online event hearing from international experts and policy setters. The July 29th forum will offer an overview of Australian research in dairy beef, as well as hearing from businesses which are currently making it work. You can register by heading to dairyaustralia.com.au forward slash dairy beef forum 2021. Well, that's it for this episode of Dairy Pod. As always, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed other podcast platforms to hear previous Dairy Pod episodes. We'd also love to hear about any guests you'd like to hear from or topics you'd like to see covered in future podcasts. Feel free to drop us an email at dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.